0: Well, if you wouldn't mind grabbing your Bibles, turn into Acts 21. We're actually not doing the entire chapter this week, which is a break. I thought there'd be much rejoicing when I said that. Acts 21, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 36. We're going to really just continue worshiping now as we open God's Word. And as we open God's Word, the encouragement for us is not to just sort of sit back and sort of give it a casual glance, but to actually lean in to it and listen and then pray that God would help you apply it to your life as we scatter today. Acts 21. So when God saves you, if you are a saved person, when God saves you, something that happens is that you are immediately sent on mission. So God saves you and immediately it's as if he pulls you in and then he throws you out. He doesn't just throw you out on your own, but he sends you out as he's walking with you to be on mission. So the gospel, this good news that saved you, it, it has such a monumental effect on your life. Um, it has such a reshaping of your heart, such a reordering of your affections, we talk about that a lot here, that then the pursuits of your life, they, they take this massive paradigm shift, right? They shift from what the world and what you in the world used to pursue for success and satisfaction, and it shifts you now to pursuing Christ and those things that advance the kingdom because what you were saved from and saved out of was the kingdom of the world, which you were doing everything in your power, whether you knew it or not, to advance, And so by being saved by God's grace, now you're advancing a different kingdom, an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. So you were saved and then sent on mission. Well, what do we mean when we say mission, right? Well, we mean that wherever you are, you're an ambassador for Jesus who holds the message of the gospel, You're an ambassador for Jesus with the message of the gospel. So then the next question is, great, I get that, maybe, but how do I go on mission? How do you go on, on mission? Well, if you're saved, here's the irony of it, is that you're already on mission. If you're saved, you are on mission. To be a Christian is to actually be A missionary, right? So, and if you're like me, if you grew up like me, um, I grew up in churches where missionary only meant one thing, right? It meant, um, you know, start packing your bags because we got like a 20-year round in like China for you. Or, you know, just make sure you pack your shorts because we're sending you off to Africa for the next like three decades and this is what you're going to have to prepare yourself for. Now, if you were me, that absolutely scared you to death. It paralyzed you and I was just running out the door praying to God that he had some other, you know, work for me because, man, when you say mission, that produces a particular kind of fear inside of me that I just wasn't comfortable with and I think it was because I misunderstood that word, right? I didn't really understand what the Bible meant when it said mission because although, man, some are uniquely called to go serve in in other countries, man, to give their life away to something where they are, man, serving a a people of a different language, bringing the gospel to bear uh, in in just in different, uh, for different tribes, different tongues, different nations who have never heard the gospel. That's a particular calling for some uh, people. Some are uniquely called and sent. But... Here's what I didn't realize as clearly is that we are all called to be missional. We're all called to be ambassadors, which is basically embracing your love for Christ and identifying with him as being somebody who is being sent out with the gospel message that you were saved with. And he uses that missional mindset and practice and work as a way to save other people. And so it happens wherever you are. So to be a missionary in the larger sense of the word, to be missional means man, everywhere you are, you have this message of the gospel, right? So then what does it mean to be missional? Well, what street do you live on, right? Where do you shop for groceries? Where do you go to school? Where do you work? That's where God has sent you to give testimony to his salvation, through ongoing relationships. So in every way, shape, and form, that's how we are missionaries. We are a missional people in that we have this message of the gospel as ambassadors of Christ in every facet of life that God has put us in. But because the Christian life is a spiritual battle with a real enemy that does not want to see the kingdom of God advance, what's going to happen in your missional momentum and forwardness and kingdom of God work is that man, you're going to be confronted with threats. You're going to be constantly confronted with threats to keep you from staying on mission because the Bible tells us we have an enemy that is very keen and very eager to kind of pull you back from even thinking you're on mission, Right? From thinking that those mission people are the ones that go to another continent. When in reality, we're actually all on mission. So what we're going to do is we go through Acts 21 this morning, is we're going to look into three things that threatened Paul's mission. And the three things were this. It was emotion, misconception, and aggression. And the first one we're going to look at is emotion. So let's pick up, with, if you would, with me. 21, verse 1. I'm going to start reading. It says this. This is Luke writing the book of Acts. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They stopped stop there. So right now, we're still in the middle of Paul's journey trying to get to Jerusalem because he feels compelled to bring the gospel to Jerusalem, a place that he hasn't been to in some time. Picking up in verse 5, When our days there were ended, we departed, went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. One of the seven deacons that we learned about all the way back, I think it was in Acts 2. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping. And breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should So let's just stop right there because what we're seeing here is that as Paul is on his journey to Jerusalem, staying on mission, being faithful to the work that God has given him, there are things that are constantly coming at him to unravel him and to threaten his mission. And one of the first things we see, which is kind of subtle in and of itself, is emotion. So Paul's friends in Tyre, they urge him not to go to Jerusalem because they knew through the Spirit that hardship awaited him. And they were fearful for him. They didn't want to see anything harm him, right? And then we see this prophet Agabus. He warns Paul by tying his own hands and his feet with Paul's belt. And Paul ends up saying, hey guys, what are you doing? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart the way you are? And so what we see here is that as Paul is on mission, he has these emotional moments with dear brothers And sisters, that if he's not careful, could go some way in sort of pulling him back from what he knows God has called him to do, right? So let's talk a little bit about emotions here for just a little bit, because what emotions do is that they tell us things about people right? That's what we know about emotions. So uh, if you're somebody who gets very angry at somebody for something in particular, what we could say, what we could sort of surmise or, or, or or, you know, diagnose from that emotion is that chances are you're very fearful about something. So when we react in anger, what it really is, is that we tend to be a little fearful about something that somebody has said that unsettles us a little bit. Uh, for some of us, we may have been faced with a certain amount of sadness, like Paul was here. And what we would say about sadness, if somebody is very sad at something you've said or something that you're doing, chances are you can relate that to the fact that they're feeling some sense of, of loss, which we see here with these particular disciples that were just, they were just sad to see Paul go because they didn't think they were going to see him again and they were afraid for the loss that they might experience when he faced what he was going to be facing in Jerusalem. So emotions are good things. They tell us about something of the reactions. They tell us something deeper about the way people react to us, right? They also though can influence us and they can influence our actions, right? Paul said, look, I I love you. And I, and I love that you love me. And I love that you're weeping and your heart is broken. But here's the thing. I, I'm, I'm not willing for those emotions to sway me from the mission that God has called me to. Paul said, I'm willing to be imprisoned. He said, I'm even willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Paul was on a mission, he was intent on staying on that mission. and Even when he was faced with emotions from just dear brothers and sisters who wanted his best, who had his best interest in mind, he couldn't let that sort of sway him. And of course, this just mirrors Jesus, the life of Jesus. Jesus was met with so many emotions, right? Just like Paul. Remember how angry the Pharisees were at Jesus, Remember how there was that moment when he was casting out demons and the Pharisees said, you're not doing that in the name of God. You're doing that in the name of Beelzebub or the name of the devil. We're so angry that you're performing these works. Um, and so th- there was this anger and this fear that came flooding out to Jesus because of the work that he was do. And remember that time when his two of his best friends, Mary and Martha, they were filled with sadness when they went to Jesus and he didn't come soon enough to heal their brother Lazarus. And they poured out to him, they were, they were frustrated, but they were sad because they were losing their brother. And they felt like, Jesus, you're, you're just not helping us the way that we're asking you to help us, right? Remember the time when Peter rebuked Jesus. He was angry with Jesus, right? Because what did Jesus say? Hey, fellas, I don't know if you know this, but the reason why I came to earth was so that I could uh, live a perfect life and die for the sins of the world. And Peter rebuked him for saying that he had to suffer and die. So all of these emotions that Jesus faced, he didn't let them compromise his mission. And and emotions shouldn't compromise our mission either. In fact, emotions should give evidence of the heart behind the mission, right? And that's what you see here with these dear brothers and sisters that are sad about what Paul is heading into. We shouldn't let emotion deter us from mission. At the same time, we shouldn't let mission be devoid of emotion, right? The Bible doesn't say to abandon emotions ever, right? Jesus, probably the most emotional person that ever walked the face of the earth. It says, don't be ruled by our emotions. We look at Peter, there's a brother that was ruled by his emotions. You look at big R up here, a guy that tends to be at times, my wife would tell you, ruled by his emotions, right? What did God tell Peter when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter was getting emotional with Jesus, saying things that didn't really align with the mission of Jesus. God said, Peter, listen to Jesus. Stop. Don't be ruled by your emotions. Listen to the words of Jesus. I remember when we, man, we left California. This was 10 years ago now. Um, I remember how sad Some people were. I also remember, my wife would be able to tell you this, how angry some people were that we were leaving. And we felt called to Ashland. We'll tell that story another time, right? Um, But we felt called. And God had opened all these miraculous doors for us to get here. There were some people that were so angry about that and so sad about that. And we were just wrecked. But you know what? It made us question in the moment what it is that we were doing, right? Because emotions, they, they play tricks with our emotions, and there were, we had those moments, I remember talking, you know, the house is all packed up, everything's a wreck, right? Um, it, it, and, and I remember having these conversations where it was like, man, are we doing the right thing? I mean, we, we got these polarizing opinions out there. Do we need to be doing this? Is this the right thing? And we felt compelled, so we continued on doing it. So emotions are good. We don't wanna be ruled by them. Paul wasn't ruled by them, but he was affected by them, but it also gave evidence to the heart behind what he was doing. Does that make sense? So we don't want emotions to keep us off mission. The second thing we see, picking up in verse 17, that Paul faced as a threat is misconceptions. Verse 17, it says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come So do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they might shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul was faced in this journey to Jerusalem with this emotional outpouring of grief Paul continues, he gets to Jerusalem, he meets with James, who really is leading the Jerusalem church, and he ends up being received with joy, right? His report uh, with rejoicing of all the work he had done with the Gentiles, but there were concerns, because Jewish believers, and again, these are believers, these are brothers and sisters, but Jewish believers were hearing that Paul had abandoned the law because he wasn't calling Gentiles to uphold it in the same way that the Jews were upholding it. That was the rumor anyway. Now, of course, it wasn't entirely true. Parts of that were true, but it wasn't entirely true. Now, there were certain aspects of Jewish law, like circumcision, which they're pointing out that Paul and the elders didn't require Gentiles to keep. They weren't held under those laws and those rules. But these Jewish believers, and they were not able to make a clear distinction between the two. So the elders asked Paul to take part in this sort of this purification ritual to show these men that he hadn't abandoned the law. He still upheld the law. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. Now, man, I don't know how many times Paul rolled his eyes and was like, seriously? Right? Like all this good gospel work, I just told you about, and now I got to shave my head, purify before the priest, and then pay for these other dudes to do it too, right? Like, we don't don't hear, I mean, I would imagine that would be my, uh, you know, response to that because I'm not the Apostle Paul, right? I'm not quite that sanctified. But you can imagine sort of like the way, hold on, what is it that you're asking me to do? Haven't my actions clarified where I'm at with these things? But we hear none of that from Paul, It's so interesting that we see this willingness from Paul to go through with what the elders were asking him to go through with because he always did whatever it took to further the gospel. Paul's Paul's whole drive was to stay on mission, to further the gospel. But what we also see with Paul is that misconceptions and misunderstandings meant they just followed Paul everywhere. So I want to talk about misconceptions just for a minute with you guys, because this is something we all face. How would we define misconceptions? Here's how I would define it. Ascribing beliefs and motivations to a person that aren't true or are only partially true. So here's what we're seeing with these Jewish believers. They couldn't differentiate. They couldn't differentiate. Paul's teaching to the Gentiles. was something they couldn't differentiate from what they held to in terms of Jewish law, so they ascribed beliefs and motives to Paul that were incorrect. Now, differentiation, which I'm gonna define in a minute, man, it's incredibly important for the church to sort of grab hold of this concept, to understand what this means for the church. Here's how we'd describe or define differentiation, all right? We would say it like this. It's working toward a healthier relational tension in which members of a church or a family or an organization can be relationally connected with each other, yet maintain their own beliefs, goals, and values, even when others in the system pressure them to change, right? So that that pressure to change, it can come from both inside and outside the walls of whether it's a church or a family or an organization, right? And remember, we, we look at the life of Jesus, we see how this happened to Jesus. The Pharisees did this to Jesus, right? They said, because you're saying this, it means that you don't believe that. And Jesus would say, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. And so they, they, they lacked differentiation. They lacked the ability to see that Jesus was holding two things to be true at the same time. Now, sometimes the root of this uh, is, is just unbelief. It's just like the Pharisees refusing to believe that what Jesus was doing and the message that he had was true. Now, the other... Um, Uh, The other root of this can just be that there's a genuine misunderstanding. And that's what we kind of see here with these Jewish believers, is that there was a genuine misunderstanding. And what we see Paul do in this case, where there seems to be genuine misunderstanding, is try to show some genuine care. He tries to show some genuine care that didn't go against what he knew was true of the gospel, right? But he also knew that where these brothers were at, it would be helpful for the, in terms of the gospel moving forward, for him to do something that didn't cause any walls or barriers to be built. Because that was what maybe was going to be threatening him. And that needs to be our posture, Right? That needs to be your posture as somebody who is on mission, who is living a missional life because there will likely be people in your life who you need to provide theological clarity for in order to avoid misconceptions from creeping in and threatening unity. Let me just use an example um, just in relation to what's been going on in our times. You know, when we talk about uh, issues of life and racism and things of this uh, nature. Um, here's an example. So substance is a pro-life church Man, we believe in the, the dignity and the life of, 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 all, of all human beings, the unborn and the born. We would say believe, we believe in life from womb to tomb. God values it all. He has dignity for it all and we want to stand at the center of that truth, right? So that would be our pro-life stance. We want our pro-life stance to be wide, right? It's not just abortion. It includes all of life, right? Now, there are some that would say, I'm against abortion. I also believe in killing abortion doctors. Now, they would stand with us in terms of being against abortion, but in no way can we stand with them in terms of their desire to, to murder abortion doctors, we can't do that. So that's differentiation, right? That's being able to say, hey, we both are for this particular thing, but we're not for that thing, right? And then it brings us even into the, the subject of, of racism. We believe that God loves all races and ethnicities, and so do we. So we would stand against racism. as a very simple statement, guys. We would stand against racism. But here's something else that we will not, not stand against. We will not stand, I mean, that we will stand against. We will stand against violence. We will stand against ideologies that go against um, anything that God teaches us in terms of loving our neighbors and in terms of, uh, you know, the destruction of property, in terms of us honoring and giving dignity to our brothers and sisters. So we can hold these two things in common. It's called differentiation. Differentiation. And it's so important for the church to do that because misconceptions are hard. They create chaos. They're hard for Christians too. It's hard to be misunderstood, especially when you're just seeking to obey the Lord, right? And it's even harder if you look to your right or your left, if you're looking at a brother or sister right now, and they're the ones who are maybe misunderstanding you. Now, if you could... a look at some of my personality tests that I've taken, I've taken about 907 of these things, right, because that's what pastors do. But if you could look at some of my personality tests, like the Enneagram, you would see how much I struggle. So here's just something I'm confessing to you guys. Man, I struggle so much with being misunderstood, right? It's a massive struggle with me, which gives, which makes it even more difficult given that I, I speak and I write for a living, right? So for me, it's about, hey, can we create clarity? Are we being clear? When we get together as elders, we are constantly talking about that. Man, are we we being clear? Are there brothers and sisters that may be misunderstanding us? What can we do to clear up that misunderstanding? That's always going to be our desire and our heart. And this, as we're seeing here with Paul, this is where the concept of differentiation is so important. So as a Jew from birth, Paul held to Jewish law, okay? It was his conscience, but he also knew that Gentile believers didn't need to have the same conscience toward those things. Paul was able to differentiate here. Hold to your laws, my Jewish brothers, is what he's saying, but remember that Jesus fulfilled them, so keeping the law doesn't save you, but it's okay to keep it as a tradition. But also remember that the Gentiles don't need to keep Jewish laws like circumcision, but they're every bit as saved by God's grace as you are. Does that make sense? So, by differentiating, Paul was teaching his Jewish brothers to do the same. And by the way, there, there can be and there should be healthy relational tension in any church, right? There should be healthy relational tension even in a marriage and even in a family. Man, like, there are things that me and my wife disagree on, right? We're still hanging, we're still together. I mean, there are ways that she sees things that I go, not sure. We're not there. Most of the time I eventually come to the table and go, okay, I, I wasn't seeing it before, but you were right. And thanks for being patient with me because I'm, I'm on board something that I was a little slow on. Because there's different paces for us all in that growing process, right? Um, and that's what we see here as being something that allows us to uh, thrive in healthy unity. Because without differentiation, I'm using that word so much, right? But misconceptions can derail us. They derail us from mission. So we always need to fight for clarity and understand that people's misunderstandings can be rooted in a bunch of different things. And that's okay as long as we continue to stay unified and drive towards clarity. Romans 14, by the way, is incredibly helpful for us Uh, in this where Paul is teaching the Romans and he's saying hey at the end of the day it is not for us to come to our brother and sister and just automatically with no sense of nuance just immediately judge them for a particular uh, conviction or or conscience that they hold on a matter but it's time for us to pull back and and be patient with them and bring them in and, and love them that's what Paul's trying to say in Romans 14 believe it or not there are matters in the church that are wait for it Disputable matters. They're disputable matters, right? We need to be careful not to ascribe a passion of ours to someone else, right? We need to be careful to not turn debatable matters into divisible ones, to issues that divide us. We just gotta be really careful to not do that. And by the way, and here's, I think, what's so important about this. This is what separates us from a world who has nowhere else to see this in action, but the church, right? This is our gospel heart, right? This is our gospel tenor. This needs to be the tune of our church. Man, I wanna walk with you, brother. I'm gonna walk with you. Yeah, that whole thing you're talking about, I don't know, but I'm walking with you. We're gonna work this out. I wanna walk with you, sister. I wanna reason with you. I wanna be unified with you. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus who, by the way, was incredibly misunderstood his entire ministry. The misconceptions about Jesus, yeah, none of us are ever going to get close to stacking up a number that high, right? Jesus kept the law perfectly and yet he kept and fulfilled it in ways that were new to people who were so steeped in tradition they had trouble understanding that the law is contained in the heart, not just in the hands, right? So we need to strive for clarity. We need to practice differentiation so that we stay on mission. The final threat here that, that Paul uh, comes up against is aggression. Let's pick up in verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and the the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Let me stop right there because it was a no-no to bring a Gentile into the main portion of the temple where only Jews were allowed to worship. And that's what they are claiming they'd seen Paul do. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed him, crying out, away with him. So how would we define aggression here? This is how we would define it, using words of words or physical force to stop a person in their tracks, right? There are those who will want to take you down because you're somebody who holds to the Christian faith. You're somebody who holds to the gospel. There will be people who want to take you down because, listen, when misconceptions are unresolved, aggression tends to rise up right? And so these Jews from Asia, man, these dudes, they've been following Paul. They've continued just to hound Paul, to stir up the crowd against him. And this time, they physically attack him. They physically start beating him until he is rescued by the Tribune. Um, Man, I remember when I was a kid, this was the 80s, sorry, on my bike, uh, in a parking lot, and this group of older teenagers wearing like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin t-shirts, um, they almost hit me in the parking lot and they swerved and they skidded out, right? And so they stopped and one of them, the driver got out of his car. I mean, it sounded like the, it sounded like the setup to a really bad 80s movie right now, I get it, right? But he, and it felt like that too, but he stopped and he started yelling things at me, right? So there's four dudes, about five years older, twice as big and me on my BMX bike, right? Um, and so he just starts yelling things at me and being the self-righteous Pharisee that I was at the age of 14, the tender age of 14, I gently replied, well, Jesus loves you, right? And the driver replied, now I'm going to kill you, right? That's what happened, right? And he proceeded to chase me through the parking lot until I escaped. And the only reason why I escaped is because it paid to be fast on a BMX bike in the 80s, right? This is not what Paul is experiencing right here, by the way. And he had no BMX bike to escape from this violent mob either, by the way. But it's to point out that truth can lead to trouble. And it can lead to violent trouble. Paul was in trouble all the time. Do you realize that? Do you realize since we've gotten into the story of Paul, has there rarely been a time that Paul has not been in trouble? But yet, has Paul stayed on mission has Paul never failed to speak the truth? Has Paul been gentle in his approach? Has he been lowly in his approach? Has he been loving in his approach? Has he strived, with? Ang- he, he talks about this later, with all anxiety and tears to pray and to help and to preach and to train? Yeah, Paul's done all those things. And that dude is in constant hot water. He's never not in trouble. He wasn't perfect, he was a sinner saved by grace, but he was constantly in trouble for preaching the truth. People were uncomfortable with his message and people are gonna be uncomfortable with our message, right? And so for us, aggression doesn't always have to be physical, it can be verbal, right? Likely it'll be more verbal, It can be passive aggressive in nature and tone. Aggression in any form though, here's the big point, it causes feelings of fear and that fear can threaten us to retreat or to go on the attack. So we either pull back or we just unleash like a lion on somebody. But the Bible gives Christians a better way, which is what we see in the life of Jesus and then modeled in the life of Paul, a better way, which is endurance and blessing. Because you know what, what did we say a minute ago? Jesus was met with misconceptions that turned into aggression. And we know that the aggression turned on him is what led to the cross. Luke 23, 20 says, Pilate addressed them once more. This is when Jesus was in court and on trial, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. That was aggression. A third time he said to them, Pilate talking to the crowd, he said, why? Why crucify him? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt to serving death. I will therefore just punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And it says their voices prevailed, just like the voices that prevailed here with Paul. But look how Peter tells us Jesus responds in his letter in 1 Peter 2. He says, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's amazing how we don't see Paul react here. It's amazing that when we look back on the life of Jesus, just receiving all that aggression, we don't see him react. He wasn't a reactor. And this is how Paul tells Us, we should respond. We go to 1 Corinthians 4.12. He says, when reviled, listen to this, guys. We're almost at the end. When reviled, we bless. What? When reviled, we bless? I can't do that when somebody disagrees with me on Twitter. I got to come back. What do you mean, I bless? He says, "When when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. We get through it. We grow through it. He says, when slandered, we entreat. So when somebody is saying false things about us, when they're lying, we don't do this, but we move toward them. I don't do that very well at all. I'm guessing most of you don't either. He says this listen, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Because what he's trying to say there is that people that react in a way that is so counter to how the world reacts. When we don't react, but we respond with a heart that has been changed and has been softened and has been molded by the love of Christ, we are gonna be looked upon as people in the same way that Jesus was looked upon as somebody who is weaker and somebody who isn't standing up for their rights, and somebody who is looked down upon because they're not, they're not forcibly coming back at people, but they're pulling back in a way that says, I want to show blessing. I want to show endurance. I want to come closer to you even when you are pushing against me. The world doesn't have a category for that kind of endurance and blessing. And you know what? We don't either... We don't either because we don't respond this way. We react. Many times we react. So our invitation today is to think of those ways that we react. Think of those ways that emotion, misconception, and aggression is threatening to keep us off mission. Three implications for us very quickly. Invest in people who learn from you and love you. So if we are going to be able to face emotion and misconception and aggression while staying on mission and have our hearts continue to grow soft for Jesus, one thing we can do is invest in people who learn from you and love you. It might be people who you've reached out to with the gospel even. People who encourage you to stay the course to not derail, to say, hey, it's okay. Like you're doing well. My friend, Michael Crawford, this is a brother who flew in from Baltimore just for the day on Thursday because he thought I needed encouragement. He got on a plane for one day because I was so low and he came out just to say, dude, it's okay, man. And it was okay and it is okay but I was letting emotions and misconceptions tweak with me because I'm not very strong in those areas he helped me see some things in my life that I've been missing and I feel so massively encouraged and he's only one person I've had other people do that for me as well invest in people who learn from you and who love you and can encourage you. Secondly, always seek clarity in the gospel while leaving room for growth. Don't forget that last part. Leaving room for growth. Seek clarity, leave room for growth. You buy shoes a size too big for your kids for a reason. Why? Because you want to leave some room for them to grow so that you don't have to buy another pair of shoes in like 10 minutes, right? That's why you do that. So seeking clarity also includes the clarity and the wisdom to know, man, I have room to grow in this particular area. We all grow at different paces, which is why grace is so important, right? And then finally, address aggression through prayer, through entrusting God, and through silence, and through blessing. Those things that feel so counter to us when we feel like people are coming against us verbally, or passive-aggressively. Think about the way that Jesus responded. Think about the way that Paul responds here. And remember how we respond is connected to the endurance that God builds in us and grows in us. And what a great thing for us to remember as we are a church that wants to stay on mission. Man, We don't, we don't want COVID to knock us off mission. Man, there's there's been so much heavy mental fatigue. I've talked to so many of you. You are tired. I'm tired. How can we? We haven't done anything in four months. No, 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 no. We're tired. We've been faced with things that are new for us. We're faced with things that we've been forced to find categories for that we don't have categories for. Man, we're learning new things about the way we've believed and the perceptions we've had. You know what? It's okay. It's okay. Now we're learning together. We're learning what it means to live in grace. We're learning what it means to have emotions, misconceptions, and aggressions come out on us in very unique ways that we had never anticipated in 2019. And here we are having to face these things. And Paul shows us, man, we can face these things together. Paul didn't face these things alone. He had brothers and sisters that loved him and cared for him. He had a church that was behind him. And you know that that's the same for you. If you're sitting in these chairs, you have a group of brothers and sisters that is with you and behind you and backing you. And by God's grace, he's gonna be patient with you. And by God's grace, he's gonna call you out on some things. And by God's grace, he's gonna challenge you on some things. And by God's grace, in the midst of it all, is gonna stick with you through all things does that make sense can we do that together because golly I love you and I want this church to be unified and I know that we're facing emotions and misconceptions and verbal aggressions God is nearer to us than all of those things and he is who we have amen let's pray God we thank you that you are the one that unifies us. You are the one that keeps us on mission when we are too weak and when the emotions, misconceptions, and aggressions are bearing down on us, Lord. So God, we pray for strength and endurance. We pray for hearts of grace and understanding and patience today. In Christ's name, amen.